Hello and welcome back to State of Mind with me, Grace Kingswell. Today's episode has been highly requested by you listeners, so I hope it's going to provide a lot of insight and value for you all. My guest today is Abby Foreman, a female hormone and endometriosis specialist working under the same discipline as myself, nutritional therapy. In this episode, we talk about thyroid function, the sex hormones, PMS, period pain, endometriosis, fasting, and why it's not always beneficial for women, and so much more. Get ready to learn a lot about your cycle and start feeling empowered and in control of your hormonal health. As ever, if you enjoy the episode, please do subscribe and review as that really helps. So on with the episode. Without further ado, welcome Abby Foreman to State of Mind. How are you doing today? It's amazing to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be on and I am doing very well. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, really good. I think this uh, this episode has been much requested by my audience. So I'm really excited to bring them some, um, some nuggets of information that they can kind of implement in their lives. So... Today we are talking all about female hormones, your speciality subject, Um, and I'd love to just start off with doing a quick rundown of the female sex hormones. What are they called? What do they do? And why is each one important? Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the best way to start the topic, I suppose. Um, I, when I think of the female sex hormones, I like to think of it as our hormone cycle. So if anybody tracks their cycle here, they'll probably have an idea of the rhythms that I'm talking about. But um, I would say there's five main hormones that um, I really talk to clients about. And they are in really involved in making the female hormone cycle healthy, making it optimal and making us um, understand our biology much better. So if we start with like the beginning of our cycle on a month when I talk about our cycle I talk about the monthly cycle from per- from the first bleed to the next bleed rather than just the bleed um so if we start with the follicular phase which is the first phase of the hormone cycle the first hormone that really comes into play there is something called follicle stimulating hormone which is fsh and as the as we start to bleed fsh slowly increases And basically, FSH is responsible for stimulating the follicle growth in the ovaries. So each month, each of our ovaries um, grows about 15 follicles due to the FSH production. And then in response to those follicles being stimulated, um, estrogen is produced. So the follicles are responsible for producing estrogen in that first phase. And estrogen is responsible for thickening our uterine lining for implantation later on in the cycle. And then once basically that um, follicular phase lasts maybe about 14 days on average, it depends each on each woman. And when we get to about the 14 day mark, there's a, ri- a big rise in FSH, estrogen and a hormone called luteinizing hormone. Luteinizing hormone is responsible for triggering ovulation. So you have 15 follicles in each ovary being grown over the Um, first two weeks of the cycle and it's kind of a race towards ovulation so it's probably the the strongest follicle the most dominant follicle is chosen to to ovulate and luteinizing hormone is the thing that's responsible for releasing that egg out of the ovary and into the fallopian tube and then it drops straight away 
And at the same time, testosterone rises. Testosterone is often thought of as a male hormone, but women need that in order for us to ovulate healthily. And testosterone is responsible for sparking our libido, for making us want to make a baby, I suppose. That's the whole point of our hormone cycle. And after about 24 hours after we've ovulated, we start to produce progesterone. And that's because the emptied egg sac, so... Um, once the egg is released from the ovary, the egg sac that it was in becomes a gland, an organ, I suppose, called the corpus luteum. So each month, our biology is capable of making a whole new organ. And that organ is responsible for producing progesterone throughout the rest of the hormone cycle. So after ovulation, it's called the progestational phase, the luteal phase. And we want our progesterone to be super high in that phase. And then we do get a second spike of estrogen just to make sure that the endometrial lining is thick enough and healthy enough for implantation. And progesterone is basically responsible for keeping estrogen in check during that phase. It's what it promotes um, implantation. And it's a thing that really helps um, oppose the effects of estrogen so it's anti-stress anti-anxiety it's one of the most protective hormones that women can make and well men can make as well and a lot of the time in that um, progestational phase the luteal phase that's when pms and pmt and a lot of women's hormone symptoms tend to occur and it's usually because of an imbalance in that progesterone and estrogen ratio whether or not mm. it's because you're not ovulating healthy enough um or optimally enough or whether you do have too much estrogen circulating so the progesterone isn't having that beneficial effect um but then that, that luteal phase also lasts around 14 days. Again, it depends on each woman. And then if if implantation happens, the corpus luteum kind of stays alive and promotes progesterone to support pregnancy. But if implantation doesn't happen, all the hormones drop and that's when you get the bleed. So the uterine lining, that estrogen's been thickening, um, comes away and that's when we get our period and we enter another cycle of those hormones. Hmm. So, you know, when you finish your period and you feel bloody fantastic um, and you have that like week or two weeks where you are super productive at work, you can do lots of exercise, you've got loads of energy, like you just see life through very rose tinted glasses. Um, presumably that is down to progesterone or is that just down to having a good uh, balance of hormones? So progesterone is only um in the in after ovulation we don't make our ovaries especially don't make progesterone before ovulation so in that first the first two weeks before ovulation mm -hmm. so after we bleed um i would say that that um rise in hormones is when you get that you're uplifted from the emotions and the feeling down from your period but that's probably more the fsh and estrogen um mm -hmm. i actually saw that really strongly this last cycle usually i'm quite like I, I gently fluctuate in and out of my um, phases, I suppose. But this time um, I had a bit of a period where I was like just feeling really emotional, really down. And the next day I was like a totally different person. So I saw yeah. that like increase in hormones straight away. But I would say it's more of that balance of FS, FSH and estrogen. But after mm. ovulation, um, that is when the progesterone kicks in and that's when we would um hopefully see much better quality sleep less anxiety less stress however that's not 
the case for a lot of us because we're not making optimal progesterone or mm. we have too much estrogen. Mm. So estrogen actually, um, it's funny how different hormones get victimized, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. estrogen does make us feel great. Mm-hmm. And as women, it is so crucial. I mean, obviously, when we enter the kind of the next big phase of our life and we go through the menopause and we we experience all the effects of having low estrogen we really start to notice how crap we feel without it but mm-hmm. we victimize it in the sense of um this whole not concept of because it's a real thing but but um the, the problem of estrogen dominance in our earlier years being responsible mm-hmm. for you know those pms symptoms those heavier cycles heavier bleeding pain with periods Shall we jump into a little chat about what estrogen dominance is and mm-hmm. why we are all... Because let's face it, a lot of women are suffering from this. And I think, as I'm sure you'll touch on, a lot of it has to do with lifestyle and, um, you know, stress and all of that stuff. So let's, yeah, let's go into estrogen dominance. Yes, exactly. So exactly like you said, when you feel that rise in hormones and you feel better after your period, that is down to that estrogen rise. The body's finally making some hormones to make us feel good. But the problem with estrogen dominance is you're not necessarily, I mean, everybody's different. You're not necessarily making too much estrogen. It could be that balance of estrogen to progesterone. Like I said, it's all in context with um, other hormones. Um, Estrogen dominance can come from exogenous estrogen. So estrogen externally in the environment, which we can go into more detail about, but from the pollution, the air we breathe, from the food we eat to the products we put on our skin. These have estrogens, um, xenoestrogens or phytoestrogens, which um, if out of eaten out of context with uh, like an overall nourishing diet or applied to the skin too much, it can they can bind to our own estrogen receptors. So in every single cell, we have receptors for every single hormone, nutrient, everything our body needs. And it's like a lock and key situation. So there's a receptor for estrogen, there's a receptor for progesterone. These exogenous hormones can bind to these receptors. So they prevent our own body's estrogen from binding and it basically puts us in this situation of estrogen dominance and a lot of people out there don't like to use the word estrogen dominance because it can be misleading exactly like you said Um, and the problem isn't necessarily estrogen itself estrogen isn't a bad hormone it's the sources of estrogen and the balance that we have with progesterone now there's also a really another important factor which I think is the main driver of estrogen dominance or hormone imbalance and it's estrogen accumulation. So hormones, toxins, things like um, minerals that need to be eliminated, heavy metals and um, hormones that need to be eliminated as well can get stored in our fat tissues and if we don't have a healthy thyroid, healthy metabolism, they start to accumulate and they cause this um, estrogenic state, which is often um, shows up as like PMS. So whether it's heavy, painful periods, clotty periods, whether it's headaches, emotions, depression, cravings, that week, two weeks before your period, a lot of women notice a big change in their how they live their daily life and how they experience their symptoms and it can be because of this estrogen accumulation so we basically need to make sure that we are eliminating these hormones and other toxins from our body um 
And another part of that is if we aren't able to eliminate them and we do have maybe an issue with our thyroid or metabolic health and these hormones are storing our tissues, it's highly likely that we're not making optimal progesterone because progesterone requires thyroid hormone and metabolism to be made. So there's a a big picture of hormone imbalance really rather than one hormone being bad and one hormone being Mm. good. I think it's so important for people to realise that this whole hormone picture is one hell of a delicate game. Like it's, you know, like you were saying just then, you're not going to have adequate oestrogen without adequate progesterone and the other way around. Like Mm. the interplay is so, so, so important. So do you think then that we can... Because there's lots, there's lots out there that will claim to balance your hormones. And obviously, you know, there's there's a lot of important factors. I'm really um, passionate about talking about how blood sugar is so important for maintaining um, uh, good hormone function um, and also gut health because um, one of the roots out for estrogen is in our poo. Mm-hmm. Um, the main root, really. The yeah. main root. Um, so, you know, that needs to be open and, and working. But what do you think about something like seed cycling? So is that a, you know, quick fix, let's say, to balancing your hormones? Yeah, I've not had good experience with seed cycling, personally. Um, mainly you have to have very good elimination in order, mm. because when I start working with clients um, around this, which is basically all the work I do, I focus on that gut health. I focus on making sure we are going to the toilet, having a bowel movement at least once a day. We want it optimally like three times a day and we want it to be a healthy bowel movement. We want to feel good and energised mm. after going. You probably know that feeling after going to the toilet, you feel good, not... Yeah, when you have a good poo, it's great. It's, the best feel- <laughs> it's one of the best feelings ever. Um, and so you can go to the toilet three times a day, but it might not be getting everything out and when we if we're constipated or not going regularly enough our hormones everything that wants to be excreted gets reabsorbed and that's where Mm. it starts to accumulate so one of the main things is making sure our elimination pathways are open before we start to move hormones and balance hormones because Mm. if we go in with seed cycling we're potentially moving all of these hormones but then they've got nowhere to go they get reabsorbed and there is a big problem with seed cycling that I've come across and it's just the high amount of fiber so a lot of people think we need loads of fiber in order to have a healthy digestion and we do need fiber but we also need thyroid function if we can Mm. put fiber 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 in there but if we aren't if we don't have the energy, so thyroid is a thing that keeps things moving. It's responsible for the movement of energy through the body. If we don't have that, then regardless of how much fiber we put in, we're not going to be moving efficiently. And fiber from nuts and seeds and these oils basically can can be quite damaging to the digestive system. Fair enough, a handful mm. of nuts or a handful of seeds here and there isn't going to be an issue. But if we're having these every single day, I do worry about Mm. the backup of that. And they can also be quite high in something called polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, PUFAs, as I like to call them. And just because because these nuts and seeds have nutrient profiles when they're tested doesn't mean to say our bodies can assimilate and use those nutrients. And polyunsaturated fats are quite concerning, especially if they are in ground-up nuts. So basically... Um, polyunsaturated fats are found in plant oils like your nuts and seeds 
and when they're extracted from that plant, when they're exposed to light, they become damaged. So the structure of that oil can become quite rancid. And then if you expose it even further to heat and oxygen, which is our body, our 37 degree oxygen rich body, they become even more rancid and oxidized. And they basically inhibit our cells ability to utilize fuel, nutrients, sugar, a lot of people blame mm. sugar for being an issue when you know our cells mm. even able to use it. Um, so I do. I love that you've mentioned this because um, last week my ep- podcast episode was on uh, plant milks, seed oils, and uh, polyunsaturated fats. And let me tell you, the uproar on Instagram <laughs> for me telling people that yeah. they they actually shouldn't be having Oatly Barista mm. oat milk with yeah. their morning coffee. I mean, the conversation has exploded and I'm so glad that you mentioned that because, yeah, it's just a really important part of health. Oh, absolutely. And it's all a marketing tactic. Uh, interestingly, I put something on yesterday. I've had a bit of a hiatus from um, Instagram just this year and I, I was inspired recently to like write posts and I wrote one about plant milk and yeah, absolutely. People are defending their Oatly. I mean, a lot of people, I think people who follow us are very open to information I've noticed so the majority of people Mm. are mind blown by it um but there are a lot of people defending their plant milk which is fine if 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 it works for you that's fine but it's understanding it's looking further than the marketing looking further than this nutrient in a trial is shown to do this okay but how Mm. does it work in our body like physiologically Mm. how does it work in our body and when we extract so um, polyunsaturated fats, so like food sources of polyunsaturated fats, naturally have vitamin E. Vitamin E helps protect is a natural protective mechanism from poofers. Like nature's intelligent like that. If it's gonna put something in that could be toxic, it puts something in that can prevent that can protect us from that. But vitamin E is damaged in the presence of light, especially if you think about when we say sunflower oil, we extract the oil from the seed. And then that's initially exposed to light. The vitamin E in that is very low. And then we store it in a see-through bottle on a shelf. Mm. It's made of plastic. Made of plastic. It's going to be even more damaged. The amount of vitamin E that we're consuming through these foods is very low. And going back Mm. to seed cycling, if you think about those damaged fats when they're just extracted from the seed, think about them when they are blitzed up and, and blended up and then you're releasing all of these fats so they're exposed to light heat and oxygen and they're just going rancid before you even put them in your body so yeah I think maybe some people can see benefits but as soon as you stop it it's just going to the symptoms are going to come back probably worse because of the damaging effects so Mm. it's just like another plaster I suppose but that's just my my opinion yeah so let's talk about our diets then um as we're kind of uh going along that road anyway what um what foods do you think that we don't consume enough of so let's let's move the conversation from because I'm I realize all the time that I like victimize stuff and then people (laughs) online are like why are you taking away all my favorite foods like all I have left is sourdough (laughs) you know anyway so let's talk about what do we not eat enough of like Mm -hmm. you know I've seen on your Instagram wall and you've seen on mine like we're both really pro um, liver for certain reasons you know we're both really pro animal fats for certain reasons Mm -hmm. Um, so let's talk about what we could be including that is really helpful for um, hormones yes um, I think it's more about 
the balance of the foods that we're eating and how and when. So I agree, we're not, we don't eat organ meats anymore as a culture. <clears throat> I don't think many West, many people in the Western world eat organ meats. And I would say things like liver, especially liver, but even heart, kidneys, all of the, this like, is it nose to tail or tongue to tail eating? Mm, is, nose to tail, yeah. Nose to tail eating is, you know, it's really beneficial for us. Liver and organ meats, I would say, are the superfood. So you can forget kale, you can forget turmeric all of these things liver is a superfood it's nature's multivitamin it's got a range of nutrients from protein a really good protein um like amino acid buildup um the saturated fats and an abundance of minerals and fat fat soluble vitamins and these all work synergistically together in the body you cannot put a synthetic multivitamin in the body and expect it to work the same as when you get these nutrients from food it's just not how um, our bodies are intent intended to function I suppose um but for me where I really start with women especially with hormonal imbalances you know when they come to me I look at their diet diaries I, I ask them to fill out like a seven-day diet diary just to get an idea of what they're eating and just from reviewing that like hundreds of diet diaries over the last couple of years I can see that we're just not eating a balance of protein, carbs and fats and we're not eating regularly enough. We are undernourished, a lot of the time under eating, but even if we're not under eating, we're still undernourished. Um, so for me, I think having that balance of quality carbs, bioavailable protein and saturated fats at each meal is key. And when I say quality carbs, I mean really easy to digest carbs. So very ripe fruit, um, well-cooked vegetables like especially root vegetables even things like honey maple syrup coconut sugar and well-prepared grains depending on your digestive health um, some people can't tolerate grains I always recommend soaking grains beforehand because it just helps to reduce the um, they have basically anti-nutrients like lectins and phytates which can impact digestion but it also helps to break down the fiber so preparing grains well and these are basically quality carbs that the digestive system doesn't have to work really hard at breaking down their fibers and they are abundant in minerals vitamins and carbohydrates and sugar basically we want that sugar to the cell quickly for energy so that's what I mean by quality carbs and then looking at bioavailable protein and like you I believe that bioavailable protein is that from animal food so whether it's eggs quality dairy um organ meat poultry fish red meat um having a good range of that in the diet is really important because it's got a really good buildup of amino acids and amino acids that we can amino acids are basically the building blocks of protein so our body can use those very easily and absorb them very easily and also there's a lot of minerals fat soluble vitamins which our body needs to um, absorb these nutrients and then we have saturated fats. So the opposite to polyunsaturated fats, I suppose. Saturated fats have been touted as like the bad fats. But I mean, even over the past decade, you know, science has come out to show that the science based on um, saturated fats being bad has been debunked, but it still never makes it to like the mainstream media. Mm, so it's, and you know, you do have to kind of question why, probably because plant oils are much more profitable in the food industry um anyway that's for a whole other conversation but saturated fats our every single cell in our body is made from saturated fats 60% of our brain is made from saturated fats our cell membrane which is the passageway to allow 
oxygen, energy, nutrients in and out of the cell, 50% of that is made from saturated fats. So we need to consume them in order to maintain healthy cellular function. And saturated fat kind of comes with the quality meat products that I was talking about, um, coconut oil, block butter, like proper grass-fed butter, um, egg yolks. So saturated fat kind of comes within the diet if you're eating a balance of carbs and and protein Mm. so I think eating those like even just getting clients to have those foods um carbs protein and fats at each meal breakfast lunch Mm. and dinner and then a carb and protein as a snack if needed as well so eating every like three to four hours um some women with severe hormonal dysregulation undernourishment even have to eat every two hours throughout the day just to keep that blood sugar much more stable because if their body isn't able to hold on to nutrients you know they're going to get that blood sugar dip so just in the first instance it's just really important to be eating consistently and eating a good balance of nutrients that's probably where I would that's where I do start with the majority of clients Mm. so Abby let's talk about contraception Mm -hmm. because it's funny because for me I never I actually never think about it because since the age of 22 um I've had no fallopian tubes anyway. So I'm like, I don't, I've never had to worry about accidentally getting pregnant when I didn't want to. But for lots of clients that I work with who are suffering from hormonal dysregulation or, you know, there's an area like a, that we need to work on to do with hormones, um, they, you know, credit to them, they want to be protected from being pregnant when they don't want to be pregnant yet so they're either on the contraceptive pill they might have the copper coil which is the non-hormonal coil they might have the hormonal coil or the implant what in your opinion firstly how do you work with women that are already subject to synthetic hormones and secondly why is the hormonal pill not the answer to balancing our hormones um because ugh, I don't know I just lose lose track of the amount of women that I see that went to their GP because they have really painful periods or you know they're bleeding like an excessive amount and they can't cope and they just get shoved on the pill yeah um w- what's your take on that so firstly working with women who are on hormonal contraception I work with a lot of women who are on it and for me it comes down to informed consent I do think um you know it's great that we have this opportunity as women now to um choose what we when we want to have children so i and I, but i don't think women who go to um the gps the doctors are informed about the Im- implica- implications of going on hormonal birth control so i discuss this with my clients and i just explain to them you know, we look at why they're coming to me, what their symptoms are, and I explain to them how potentially the birth control pill could be exasperating that underneath. I explain to them the implications of the birth control. And then I talk, I basically teach them about their hormone cycle and how to, how they have the power to understand their hormone cycle. Women can only get pregnant for one day of the, the cycle, the day after ovulation. Sperm can live up to five days. Very, very healthy sperm is known to live up to seven days. Um, but I would say around about five days. So that gives us a fertile window of about, you know, between six and nine days, depending on the health of the sperm, depending on the health of your ovulation. As soon as, if you start tracking your cycle and you understand your hormonal and 
fluctuations and your fertility signs, you can pr prevent pregnancy. Just like you, you, you track your cycle to get pregnant, you can track your cycle to prevent it. It takes a while to get to understand that process. I've been, I've been doing, it's called fertility awareness method for about seven years and I've never um, been pregnant. When I first started it, I um, obviously used condoms and was, because you need to know your cycle for a good few months to understand your fertility signs. Um, so you do have to be careful. And I would advise, I always just advise clients on educating themselves on that, but I just let them know that there's this, there is an option out there to not only understand their body and get to know their fertility signs, but once you understand your cycle, you then have the power um, and ability to manage your symptoms and your health so much better. Our our hormone cycle is our fifth vital sign. So we have four vital signs and I can't remember them off the top of my head, but it's like it's like your um, pulse rate, your um, temperature and um, two other things. But men and women have those four vital signs. For a woman, your hormone cycle is a fifth vital sign. That's why it's absolutely key. And it's just sad that in society today, we're told that oh, our hormone cycle, our periods are, aren't a blessing, the they're a nightmare men are much better off than us because they don't have to have a period but actually we have this monthly report card that it can tell us so much about our bodies and that's one of the main things I want to do is just empower women to take control of that so I just explained that to a to a client and I'm also very understanding that some women just need to be on hormonal birth control to manage pain for example just for that leg up to to get them to a place where they can start to implement things that we work on together and then in the long run I would like to help them kind of come off birth control and learn about their cycle naturally and something that's really important to mention here is I don't advise doing what I did and just coming off birth control because it can cause a lot of hormonal chaos down the line it's really good to to learn how to balance your hormones kind of before coming off it and then mm um what was the second part why, why hormonal birth control isn't necessarily the answer and that's mm. because it basically shuts down your natural hormone cycle so it shuts down your fifth vital sign birth control um basically stops ovulation it stops the um body body's ability to produce progesterone progesterone like i said is the most protective hormone out there um so it's kind of just a plaster if you've gone to the gp because of debilitating symptoms you go on hormonal birth control and because you don't have your cycle anymore you're not producing your own hormones you're not going to have the symptoms as soon as you come off hormonal birth control they're going to come back with a vengeance and you're kind of back to square one um mm. for me I want to get to that root cause yeah definitely so what about endometriosis then um I think uh, certainly the, the conversation around that is growing, which is fantastic. Um, and I know you work a lot with clients around endometriosis. I also just put a little question sticker up on Instagram before we hit record to see um, what people were particularly interested in hearing about. And um, someone has also asked about ad adenomyosis, um, which is really not mm. spoken about. Um, so what is the best way of managing endometriosis um what are the signs and symptoms and what is i guess like mm -hmm. the treatment in in quotes yeah people I know, can't I see me but i'm doing air forever. quotes um what is like the treatment <laughs> plan um if you have yes that? so um endometriosis is a it's a very chronic 
debilitating condition that um, one in 10 women are diagnosed with, but I think a lot more suffer with. Um, it is basically a condition where cells similar to your, your uterine lining, so it's not your uterine lining, but cells similar to that grow outside of your uterus. It's commonly found on pelvic organs, so even things like the liver, the ovaries, um, the bladder, the bowels. It can be found in the lungs, and I've even had people where it's in their eyes as well. So it's it's really debilitating, and it's treated as a gynecological condition, but it's not. A lot, one of the treatments um, is a hyster, full hysterectomy. And, you know, women might see um, pain relief for several months, maybe a year, but the endometri endometriosis grows back because it's not just the really a gynecological condition. Um, the symptoms can vary from having very painful periods to the point where, um, you know, you're being sick, you're fainting, you're passing out, Um through to IBS. So IBS and endometriosis are very similar. It's sometimes very hard to tell the difference. A lot of women are misdiagnosed with IBS. Um, I've had clients come to me with IBS and I've sent them back to the doctors and they've been diagnosed with endometriosis after further investigation. Mm. And even... Oh, sorry, go on. And why, why is that? Sorry, Abby, just because I know that people will be thinking that having, having heard you say mm -hmm. they're very similar. It's the impact of... Um, I suppose if you have endometriosis growing on your bowel... Um, which a lot of the time pe a lot of people do, it's quite a common place to have it growing. The inflammatory effect of that can make it look like it's obviously a digestive issue with um, diarrhoea, constipation, um, cramping away from your period. But bloating is a really big factor as well. And even if you don't have um, endometriosis growing on your bowel, there is a microbiome, like a bacterial element to endometriosis. Um, and obviously that presents itself in the digestive system. So a lot of people call it the endo bloat. And I mean, I, when I used to get it, I looked pregnant. I looked like I was ready to pop, to be honest. And mm. a lot of women do. It's so, it's very dis, um, discomforting, painful. And it comes back down to hormone imbalances, estrogen specifically, driving the water retention, driving the bloating, but also this bacterial dysregulation. Um, that it's not very well known about in, um, I suppose, the medical society, but it's something that a lot of research is pointed towards. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting, especially from an immune perspective. There's also autoimmune tendencies in endometriosis and like the microbiome and the immune system kind of go hand in hand. Um, so that's still under exploration, but um, I mainly start with that hormonal imbalance just to try and regulate the cycle a little more get progesterone get a healthy mm. ovulation get the beneficial effects of progesterone first of all um standard treatment for endometriosis is you have to have a laparoscopy to be diagnosed which is a procedure where the gynecologist um goes into your um like uterus pelvic organs and looks around for the endometriosis whilst they're there they remove it um there's the gold standard is excision surgery and then there's ablation surgery now there's only about i can't remember the, the last time i looked at this figure there was less than 300 specialists worldwide 
for endometriosis. Um, so they're the people who do the excision surgery. So it's quite hard to come by someone who does excision, especially in the UK on the NHS. You have to pay privately usually. Um, ablation surgery is just where they burn it and just a general gynecologist does that. So someone who's not... Yeah, looking at, looking at your face, that doesn't sound nice. So basically, if you think of endometrial, endometrial growth as a weed, ablation is like picking the leaves off the weed. So the 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 mm. trunk is still there so it's going to grow back much more quickly and you only get a little bit of relief and you get diagnosed with endometriosis excision surgery is pulling the weed out so you're cutting the endometriosis out however in both cases the root of that weed the root cause of the endometriosis is still there so it's highly likely to grow back um so that's why women with endometriosis can be having that they spend a lifetime going in to laparoscopy surgeries for relief and then eventually they probably get mm. a full hysterectomy um and it is just really mm. sad to see and the work I do you know I I have seen endometriosis going to remission but it's it depends on the person because it's such a chronic condition there's also a element of um inheritance so if your mum or your grandma have like thyroid issues um estrogenic issues it's highly likely that's passed down. My gynecologist, when I went for my laparoscopy, I had a huge, I had like a 12 centimetre cyst in my ovary, endometrial cyst in my ovary growing. Um, I have no idea where it fit. I don't understand how there was something 12 centimetres growing inside me. And he said he thinks that um, I was born with the endometriosis in my ovary and then a life event like triggered. And I, and I know exactly what kind mm. of that was looking back. Um, so it's not as simple as, it's, it's much more complex than like PMS, PMT, period pain, because there's all these elements that need to be addressed. Um, mm. But I basically go in starting with the basics of, like I said, just making sure the person's nourished, because a lot of these issues come down to undernourishment, um, not having a really strong thyroid function, not having a good metabolism to make optimal progesterone to oppose estrogen. Estrogen, it, out of context, is a proliferative hormone. It's a hormone of growth, which is why it's connected to a lot of cancers, why it's connected to endometriosis. It's not the only problem with endometriosis, but it's a big factor. You, um, If you get progesterone, ovulation happening well, progesterone um, production optimal, you can oppose those proliferative effects of estrogen and bring some some pain management um to your to your client mm. this is why i think it's so important for women to work with practitioners that can do functional testing because sometimes you know you need to see how like if you were to do a dutch test for example you know you can actually see as the practitioner mm -hmm what pathways that woman is detoxing her estrogen down and you can see if it's going down the right pathways and you can see if it's going mm. down the potentially catastrophic pathways later later on in life um and I feel like it's it's something that oh, well it annoys me that it's not available to everyone first and foremost um and secondly it just shows you that it is a really complex issue and it's never going to be as simple as mm -hmm. someone mm -hmm. telling you to seed cycle or to drink raspberry leaf tea or you know one of these like miracle cures essentially um I was going to ask you your opinion on I mean, I already know the answer, but I was going to ask your opinion on uh, intermittent fasting for women. But um, 
I'll, I'll ask you anyway because I think it's good for you just to drill the point home. Um, <laughs> oh, so yeah, it's um, go on, tell us, Abby. It's a big thing in the health world, intermittent fasting, isn't it? And it again, it comes down to that undernourishment, that inconsistency of eating, mm. and the stress that it causes. Um, I suppose ev- starting with the basic human physiology, every single cell in our body runs from sugar. It needs sugar as fuel, and a healthy liver can store sugar in the form of glucose as it's something called glycogen when it's stored in the liver um and as we need fuel our liver um releases that and uses it for fuel to every cell now a healthy liver can store um glycogen for between eight and ten hours um and that yeah like i said that's a healthy liver not the kind of liver that we're all dealing with in today's world so if you think about an overnight fast if we've had our last meal at 7pm, so our last food intake, and then we're not eating again until, what, like 11, 12 for a fast? What, that's like a 14, 16 hour fast, however long people fast for. That's mm. going to be stressful for a healthy liver, never mind a liver that's struggling, which is very common in hormonal issues. So the way to keep our bodies fueled is by eating. If we don't have food coming in, our liver will raise stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline to break down our own body's tissues, which are things like our fat cells and our um, organs, our tissue. And it takes the protein and the fats from these cells and makes them into glucose through a process called gluconeogenesis. And to some people that sounds good. Oh, well, I'm breaking down fat cells. I'm breaking down my body. I'm going to lose weight. That sounds good. But it's not as simple as that because we're relying on stress to break down our tissue our tissue to fuel ourselves it's a form of survival it's how human bodies survived and evolved through forms of starvation yes it's possible but it doesn't mean to say it's optimal i know for a fact i don't want to fuel my body from stress mm. and what happens when we release when we break down fatty tissues we release all no. these toxins all these stored estrogens and if our body doesn't have the energy to eliminate those they're just going to get recycled so that's my main problem with intermittent fasting and over a long period of time what it does is slow your metabolic rate slow your thyroid function down and that's because our metabolism responds to the amount of fuel we put in the less fuel we put in the metabolism slows down to meet that and that's a big issue when it comes to utilizing Mm. um fuel for our body functions so it's basically very stressful um intermittent fasting and a lot of people feel good off it because adrenaline feels good at first so this is what I was about to say was that um generally if any woman says to me oh but I I don't eat till midday because I actually feel great when I don't do that and like I'm so much more focused and my brain switched on and like actually if I eat breakfast like I just really don't feel (laughs) that good I say, well, because it feels fantastic to run on adrenaline. Like, it it really does. Like, you know, those nights where sometimes you only get five hours sleep and you wake up feeling like mm-hmm. Superman. You're like, go, go, go. That's because it feels great to run on stress hormones. But at some point down the line, that yeah. car that you are driving on stress hormones will break down and the results will be way worse than mm-hmm. if you'd just eaten, like, three decent meals and a snack or whatever it may be. Um so I think, yeah, that's just one of those things, isn't it, that um, you just hear so much about on social media or, you know, one of these like cure all fixes that actually for, especially mm-hmm. for women, because our hormonal cycle is so 
so tied up with our stress hormones as well mm-hmm. um, is really, really important to bear that <laughs> in mind. I'm so glad so, you're on yeah, the same thanks page. Thanks for um, ditching the dirt on that one. <laughs> yeah. And then I guess the last thing I want to just circle back mm-hmm. to um, is just this issue of thyroid and how important thyroid is um, with regards to everything we've spoken about today. So if you could, uh, I think people now probably understood that thyroid is to do with metabolism and a healthy metabolism is crucial for healthy hormones. What are some simple things that people can do to support their thyroid function? Yeah. Um, eat. <laughs> Nourish their bodies. Um, yeah. So your metabolism is basically the rate at which your body, how efficiently your body is able to make um fuel from the food that you eat and how efficiently it gets that fuel to the cells that's your overall metabolic process and the thyroid hormone so the thyroid is a gland in your neck and it basically makes several hormones with the aim to make an active thyroid hormone known as t3 t3 is responsible for getting every single nutrient oxygen energy to your cells so i said the the blood is the highway the T3 is a taxi and it takes everything to your cells. So you need optimal um, thyroid and metabolism in order to nourish yourself. Now, like I said before, metabolism responds to how frequently you are eating. The less food you put in, the slower your metabolic rate is. So the slower your thyroid is, the less nutrients you're getting to your cells. So the best thing we can do for metabolic health and thyroid health is to reduce stress through nourishing our bodies under nourishing is stress itself so eating within a narrow of working i advise especially women with hormonal issues even if you're not hungry if you aren't hungry that's a big sign that your body is already fueling itself from stress so even just having a little like maybe just one egg and a piece of fruit or um you know just something small to get you going until you start to get your appetite back and then just eating every three to four hours carbs protein and fats Mm. being cautious of over exercising and i mean it's probably for another topic talking about how you can use your hormone cycle to get the best out of your exercise and your energy but i always recommend bringing it back to like walking yoga just more gentle calming exercises rather than going for the hit and the running and the cardio you need to have a very nourished strong constitution to manage that um but yeah i would say starting with eating and preventing like reducing the amount of polyunsaturated fats we have in our diet they are very anti-metabolic anti-thyroid and whilst we can't totally avoid them because they're in natural foods like oily fish which you know i enjoy that and i think that's a natural part of our diet but overdoing them so supplementing with them swapping out um ancestral nutrient dense foods for things like almond milks almond butter almond flour um Mm. you know going back to like a natural basic diet yeah Definitely. And we haven't even touched on, I'm conscious of the time, but I think um, one thing I will just mention at the end that we sort of really briefly touched on at the beginning is that it's super important for for women to detoxify their bathroom mm. cabinets. You know, um, any, any like non-natural products um, that we're using as body moisturizers or, you know, our face creams, um, what we spray in our hair, what we wash our hair with, these things are really detrimental to that, like you're saying, that estrogen balance. They contain xenoestrogens mm-hmm. and also plastics in our in our food as well, right? So like when you go to the supermarket, looking out for um, things that aren't 
wrapped in plastic if you can, like going to the farmer's market, going to the fishmonger where they, you know, they might put your fish in a plastic bag, but you're home within 10 minutes and or half an hour and you can take it out. Um, these things really matter too, don't they? Yeah, I think so. And I think especially for women with endometriosis, it's a really, it's not an easy swap. It's hard when you first learn about it, but it's one of those things that you can control and you can manage obviously we're just exposed to them in daily life anyway so it's not something to stress about so take small steps and change what you can Mm. okay abby anything else from your side that you want to add that we haven't covered that you think is important i think it's just letting women know that people who like women who are struggling right now that there is like you are not your disease you are not your symptoms you are not defined by these things and there are people out there that can help you whatever whatever route you choose to take Mm. um it's just to know that there is support out there and to to reach Mm. out if needed amazing okay well thank you so much this has been uh i think a very very useful episode for so many people so um thanks so much abby thank you for having me Thank you so much again for tuning in to State of Mind. Feel free to reach out to Abby or myself on Instagram at Grace Kingswell or at AF underscore nutrition if you have any questions about what we covered in today's episode. See you all in two weeks time as I've moved State of Mind to bi-weekly for another jam-packed episode. Bye-bye.